0: Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education I am so excited for this week's guest, Nicholas Grenier, who is a developer advocate over at Typeform. We've actually known each other for quite a few years. We'll probably tell that story at some point because it's kind of funny, but it's really good to have you uh, on the podcast. Uh, how are you doing today? Yeah, hi, I'm good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So question I start with all of my guests on, is origin stories. I love to hear how people started off in coding in the first place and ended up where they are educating other coders. So what's your origin story?
1: I think the origin story for me was probably already 25 years ago, something I guess the most. And it started because I had a laptop. I was lucky to have a laptop at home and I had a Mac. And at one point, you run out of games on a Mac at that time. So there were not that many games. And I started building websites for some like groups of people we had online with my group of friends. And it was simple as saving an HTML5 on a doc document, learning about FTP, uploading this somewhere on a server, and then boom, you had your own website available. This is how I discovered all the things about DNS and also the fact that you, when you have a page that has images, you also have to upload the images to the FTP, otherwise the images were not loading. So the first trial and error of things working or not working, it started from this. Eventually, someone in the school was offering a programming class, and I think I went to my parents, I was like, what is programming? And I think they told me, well, you've done websites, like this is new, but before what people used to do, they used to create stuff that you use on the computer, like you're using Photoshop, using all the things. Well, you can be one of them and build this. And this is how I got involved into only Visual Basic. I was on a Mac still, and it didn't have Visual Basic, even like a VBA for Office. And so I think for Christmas or for my birthday, I got a license for Real Basic, which was the basic version for Mac. And my mom printed the PDF reference of everything that language. And like that was really the beginning of discovering things on my own and going into forums and ask questions over there.
0: That's really cool. I have very fond memories of Visual Basic, actually, which I feel like is, I don't know, like a lot of people hate on it. But I thought it was such a cool tool that you could see, like the GUI and the code, but also like the live values of different variables and stuff. Like, I think it was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. The cool thing is, like, it
1: was available to everybody because it was in the software that everybody was using, which was Microsoft Office. You can make some stuff. Me, when I started, I was building something really silly for my brother where I had some like shapes and I was clicking on and off on buttons and was changing the shape and so it was making a face. That was all it was doing. Like nothing fancy, ugly UI, but I was already feeling it. I was already understanding a lot of concepts. But then if you had the power of Excel combined to this, then you were making your own small kind of CRM or invoicing tool. Like you can go very crazy. And I'm sure there were a lot of businesses that were just relying on one person building this small VBA, I don't know if they were called, app or applet or micro, I think it was the name. They were just relying on this small thing to run.
0: Yeah, it's kind of cool. I feel like it's being reinvented now with a lot of the low-code, no-code tools, but there's definitely some similarities.
1: Yeah, everybody that had a bit of knowledge, if they wanted to go explore, and they were able to do a lot of it. Yeah.
0: So you and I met, I think it was back in, I don't know, 2012, 2011, something like that through an event called Startup Bus, which I feel like I've probably mentioned before on the podcast. We won't use a ton of time talking about it, but perhaps you want to describe what this event was and sort of where you were at in your career when
1: you did it. It's good that you mentioned this, because I think for me, it's kind of a foundation. It's fundamental in in my career growth of what I've been through. I think it's pretty basic, but quite exciting, too. There was a big festival, a tech festival happening in Austin. Still happening, something called South by Southwest. It was kind of a week dedicated to tech. This is where all the cool apps were launching. we were talking about Foursquare. We're talking about Twitter, I believe. Also, some stuff like Snapchat probably launched there. Highlight, if you remember these apps that disappeared, like apps that launched there also disappeared. And for people that were in San Francisco, people that were all over the country in the States, that was the dream of like, we want to be there. We want to launch our startup there. This is where the press is going to be. This is where the investors are going to be. And this is the time to be surrounded by other tech folks and network. But in the region, it was a group of Australian entrepreneurs. They couldn't go from San Francisco to Austin because they were tight on a budget and all the flights were really expensive. And so I think they put themselves on the challenges. Like, what if we go on a bus all together, like US West Coast road trip style, and we try to build a startup on the way? And they did this the first year as a group of friends. And I think once they found out that it was working, they tried to recruit more people. And that's how I got into the second year, I believe. And I've done it as an attendee two or three times and also sponsoring with the company I was with at the time. And that was a life-changing experience. Why was it life-changing? So I was still in school at the time. So it was like during an internship, normally you have to stay at your workplace and do all the hours and be nice. But the of the company was nice enough to say, OK, do you want to go live that experience? You're young. Spend 10 days over there. That's cool. And also was tight on the budget. So going to South by Southwest on a plane, finding a hotel was not possible. And so having this option and then building something was really quite exciting. We got lucky because I left from the San Francisco with the San Francisco bus. We had TechCrunch on board with us and People took it very seriously. By the time we arrived to Austin, there was no product launch, but there was still a bit of, I think, hyper news and background. So we had a bit of coverage. We had hundreds of people that went into the website, people that created fake stuff with us. But when we arrived, so we were building a cereal company called Serialize, where you will pick your own cereal mix. So the chocolate pops, so the Lucky Charms. But you want a mix of them and add a bit of uh, granola in the middle. Like something that no one sells in the store. Well, we're letting you make this mix together and you will deliver it at your door. That was the purpose of Serialize. And so by the time we arrived to Austin, we had shipped a ship the printer, shipped some cereals, shipped some boxes. So we will really make the app live and distribute those boxes to people. When we arrived, people from Kellogg's and people from the Mom cereal group, Nutritionist for mom, the mom for, for like better health stuff, heard about it. We got into some national news stuff. We're like, as we, if we were a real startup and we were just a hackathon project that was built on a bus. And that was just incredible to live through that. I think also the other thing that was like learning experience is like when you travel from San Francisco to Austin, there's a huge part of the travel that is happening where there is really no connection. And we're talking at a time where 4G over my stuff was not really working well. And so you couldn't really tether to your laptop or anything like this. And it was even worse than what it could be right now when you're crashing a desert. So you had to code locally, no API documentation, nothing like this, find your own resources, ask for help in the bus with people surrounding you. And eventually you stop at a gas station to refuel the bus or to get a quick snack. And then in the 10, 15 minutes, you had to deploy your app and push it. A, the new changes. And as we had people that were coming on the website, we had to push changes and entertain them and show them new stuff and fix the bugs that we shipped, like at the last stop. So that rush also was really exciting.
0: Yeah, I had a very similar experience. I think I did it maybe the year before you. But for me, I was also like finishing up college, had never done anything like that before. And it attracted such a unique kind of person. And it really like pushed you to your limits in a good way, right? Like I learned a ton. I did a ton of things I didn't wasn't like super familiar with, like pitching press or demoing to yeah. investors or building offline. And it definitely like for me, I don't know about you, but it sounds similar. Like sort of made me feel like I could accomplish more than I realized I could, given all of the constraints. And that was really really powerful and. You know, it's just this like really intense bonding experience with a lot of the people that you're on the bus with. Like you're literally stuck in an enclosed space with them. It's perhaps the most intense hackathon I've ever been part of.
1: Yeah, it was definitely intense. And, you know, like you do a hackathon over the weekend. At the end of the weekend, it's over. But it's uh, (laughs) like it's a two day thing here. I think it was four days like almost a whole week where we had to get to austin physically and then we were like living from san francisco we're living from far you were living from new york that was also uh, quite a trip you had people that were living from mexico and you could see the progression of all the projects and all the buses and that was like building up on the expectation building up on the excitement Mm -hmm. until you finally meet at one point and you get to hear all those projects you get to meet the people that built it you only know them from what you followed online and like kind of a healthy competitions you had. But now you're meeting in real life, you hear about their struggles, you hear about what they're building, and that amplifies everything for sure. Yeah,
0: it was really a powerful experience. So I thought that since then, you've really been working as a developer advocate. Uh, was it related at all to how you got your start as a developer advocate?
1: I think that time of my early career was uh, definitely deterministic played a huge role in this. I think this is where I found that I was a social geek. Was, what do you I mean by some... that? Yeah, so I was in San Francisco. I was, what, 20 years old, something, this, 21 years old. And during the day, I was programming uh, on Facebook apps, building Facebook apps at the time where Facebook apps were growing. And it was the beginning of Zynga and all those companies. And I think I found that I was having more fun being an engineer, going to hackathon, meeting other tech folks, building stuff together, going to meetups, talk to people, hear about their project, connecting people together. I had more fun doing that than just 100% coding work. And so I was the guy that will come back on a Monday. I was like, "Wow, guys, I heard about this API that we should use for our project that we're working on now. Maybe we should use it. And I will just like bring an API every week, kind of guy, okay. which probably was annoying for the rest of the team. But at least it's how I found that I had an appetite for this type of thing.
0: How do you think developer advocacy has changed in the last 10 years that you've been doing it? Because I think back in those early days, too, and I remember similar things, right? Like there was a ton of energy. There was all this like organic connection. There's all this like creativity. I I know that still happens, but the field has also matured and evolved as well. So what have you seen, you know, the change?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at the time, people were still defining what it was. And it was the beginning of the Twilio, the SendGrid, Firebase was also being there. I remember going to a first hackathon where Firebase was presented and the way they hustle to get all the projects to use Firebase. Basically, we can talk about that probably as a way of doing DevRel differently. So, like, everybody was like discovering this. I don't think anybody was calling themselves a professional just yet. People were doing that naturally. The companies that were starting those projects grew as they saw that they had a need for more team members in other locations, people special in different languages. I think the thing got organized, but you still get this feeling of grassroots when the company is younger, when it's the founders are on the field, the people that are actually building, like they were in a team of 10, 15 people. You get to meet those people on the field and you get the direct feedback. They get to ship stuff as you are at the hackathon. I think it's still happening and it's probably happening now in the field like AI. Where all the companies are new and they're craving for developer feedback.
0: You said that you had more to say about Firebase hustling at those early hackathons. Can you expand on that?
1: I think that's also a good memory of how you do can do stuff differently. So at the time, you had some big hackathons happening in the Valley, and they also grew outside of the Valley and internationally. Angel Hack, that was a big franchise of hackathons, and they probably also define or influence the vision you have around MLH and and the way to run events at scale. And they will do that once a month, probably something like this. In a big, really nice Adobe venue, you will have the typical API companies at the time. The Twilio, the SendGrid, Blackberry, I remember, was their job box. So people that had devices, people that had API, people that were just growing their ecosystem. And then as Hackathon already started, it's probably been like four or five hours. You get the Firebase team that shows up in all yellow shirt, like very bright yellow shirt, shows up in the floor, bring a keg because the keg looked similar to the logo, early logo they had. And you're like, well, here. Yeah. And they will stop at every single table, talk about what they were building and do a demo of real time Firebase because Firebase was at the beginning a real time synchronization tool between two devices. And they will show you, I'm. Editing a line of text here. I have another window here. You see it edit live. You see the cursor changing. And that was, at the time, mind-blowing. And they show you how to implement this. It's three lines of code. You subscribe, you push stuff to it, and that was it. And then suddenly, the project that you were building for the hackathon, that was just you pushing to a server, waiting for someone else to listen to it. Certainly, you wanted to make this a collaborative project. See how everybody contribute to this. And you could see as they were going table to table, all everybody converting their project to use Firebase. And by the end of the hackathon, when everybody demoed and they have to list stuff they use in the stack, well, everybody had used Firebase. And I think from a DevRel perspective is you completed the contract of like, we went there. No one knew about us. Now we have 50 apps that have used us. We have plenty of feedback. We learned and people are aware of our project.
0: So. That strategy of the hustling kind of DevRel, where you show up, pitch people individually, maybe you demo it, in some ways, like, is not in vogue right now. Like, a lot of DevRel teams are really focused on proving their ROI, developing scalable methods for reaching developers, really, like, thinking about it as more of a programmatic discipline than a one-to-one discipline. And I know it's not that black and white, right? Like I know that there are a lot of people out in the field doing that kind of work at meetups and hackathons. But certainly like the strategic trend is towards bigger, more scalable initiatives. How do you balance that? Like how do you think about big scalable programs versus that
1: one-on-one interaction? It makes a little sense to think a bit bigger and try to scale things, mainly because you can't be at all the events all the time. It takes resources to get your whole team together in one location and then do that multiple times into different events. I think they they did this because it was happening in their garden, literally. Like It was a block away. Let's show up. It is our crowd. It's our ecosystem. We can be part of it. So you can probably do that on your own as the local level. But then for everything that's online, you now have different ways of reaching out to more people. Is it through podcasts, Twitch, YouTube channels, uh, pairing up with someone in that already has an audience, building content with other people, like you have ways to amplify the thing and do that repeatedly with like, once you've done a, a partnership with a company of how you use my technology with your technology, let's replicate that model three or four times. So you get to talk to, let's, let's do a React project for the React folks. Now we go to talk to the Vue folks, and then we get to do Svelte Like as a way to repeat things. I think that's probably where everything is going, where you get to do more stuff online. So you can repeat that, have a bigger audience.
0: Yeah. Do you think that you get the same type of like depth of interaction online?
1: So I think it's probably what's happening afterwards, though. I was like, now that your piece is out there, now that the content is out there, this is probably when people are going to reach out one on one and be like, "I've tried your thing. What happens next? It doesn't work for me. What if I want to do this thing?" And now you have this one on one relationship, but the thing that started it is the content that you write first or the collaboration you did with someone.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that there's a hook, right? Like someone learns something and they want to go deeper as they get more advanced in either their project or the technology. And that's often when you get to know them better and help them more directly. I know that one of the strategies you have used really effectively at Typeform is that partnership model that you alluded to earlier. Where you're co-producing content or developing integrations? How did that first come about? What did that first partnership kind of look like when you started as developer advocate? I think like six years ago now.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's been a long time. So it has come in different shapes or and forms over the years. I think it because of the nature of our tool. So Typeform, we are a form solution. We help you build quizzes, surveys, or just a simple contact form. But By being Typeform on its own, you don't get anywhere, really. Your data needs to go somewhere. Is that somewhere, a database, a CRM? Is it something where you're going to do enriching of your data? Is it something where you're going to push this data to send your text? Like, you can do a lot of things, but on its own, it's uh, useless. And so because of the nature of the tool, we had to go connect with other solutions. And so I think organically, I went to try things and like write content and say how you can connect Typeform with Twilio and make a blog post about this. Eventually, then it gets picked up into the Twilio newsletter that brings you a bit of visibility. And then you continue to do that a few times.
0: So you're basically saying that like, as you were just trying to get people excited about and aware of Typeform, using other cool APIs was just a natural extension of your work.
1: Exactly. And it played two things here is we didn't really have a developer community that was organized. So, one way to grow our audience or to what I wanted is to know people maybe knew Typeform, but they didn't know that we were a developer friendly platform and that you can do stuff with developers because our main audience are not developers. It's people actually that don't know how to code and we are actually no code tool. So, that was a way to piggyback on an existing communities and get our name out there in the developer world. is like, actually, you can do stuff with Typeform as a developer. Or if someone in your company is using it, usually it's the marketing department. Well, as a developer, you can give them a better experience by connecting it to other tools, too. And that's how it worked organically. And that was through a blog post newsletter, but eventually we did some collaboration with Postman on how like you can use the Typeform API inside Postman and build some flows using their new things that they were launching at the time. I think they, yeah, they had different toolings like this. We did some stuff where we hosted the, eventually, at one point, we had enough viewers on our YouTube channel that we decided to host our own channel and our own show. And this, it was more in the no code space. So how we built a connector for an open source as uh, the pure alternative uh, called N8N. We did some stuff with the CRM that was out there as well. We tried to connect with other developer tools.
0: I know that Typeform has native integrations, right? Like, you can connect it to google sheets or you can connect it to stripe and that's like built into the product as a feature i'm curious like where engineering starts and devrel ends or dev advocacy ends in that model of integrations that's a
1: really good question because that's also like the shift of my job turn like as you try different platforms as you ship stuff fast eventually someone in the team will be like well if I ask the integration team, it will take them a whole quarter to build this integration. And we have now a conversation with a big company that wants to partner with us, but they're launching next month. So we better have an app ready for their ecosystem and their launch because they're only going to launch once, and you want to be part of that launch partners. And eventually, you go to Niko to the DevRel team and be like, "You guys ship stuff fast. You're great. You know how to provide feedback as well." So. You will make us look good as a partner. So you're right. This is how I ended up building a lot of the integrations because to entertain those conversations we had with partners to build this relationship. And to I think the goal here as well was like whatever we do in that role of like building integration, we act as an internal third-party developer. So we also bring feedback about our own API about our own documentation, about things that we need to improve. And so eventually that makes us better on the developer side too.
0: So how much of like the developer advocacy work is, I would call what you're describing there like engineering, even if it's demos, you know, it's engineering versus content writing versus events. Like what is the actual breakdown of what you're responsible for? Because I think a lot of DevRel teams are fairly, they, they have a lot of responsibilities
1: Yeah, so in our case, we kind of narrow it down a bit. So we're less about talking to every single developer in the world because this is not really our focus and this is not really our ideal customer base. So we don't want every single developer to use a Typeform API when they don't need it. But like, if someone was building a notification system, an SMS system, I can't imagine they want to talk to every single developer in the world or if they were building a database, but this is not our case. So we're a bit less focused on in-field, on-the-ground, hackathon, meetup type of stuff. Or if we do, it would be more about our main product, which is like a marketing tool, a tool for HR, a tool for quizzes and surveys, and not the developer aspect of things. And for the developer stuff, we're probably more on a partner engineering type of developer relationship stuff, where we want to be known from our ecosystem, the MarTech ecosystem, as an open platform. And there, when there is a mutual interest, we come in the relationship to help onboard those partners, build code samples for them, and eventually, they, that's how they build the integration, and that's how they ship, and this is how, what we measure, is how most of those functions did we facilitate. And then the other aspect is, very similarly, it's enterprise focus. So people that will buy Type Pharma at an enterprise level will most likely use our developer tools to create their own integration, integration that we don't offer. They build stronger connection. Then same thing here, we need to help them. We need to provide the resources for those. And eventually, by building the work for these two main audience, we're also helping the independent developer that it's like, it's there. And the work that we do at a higher level for maybe the bigger folks help the individual developer in the end.
0: So do you report into marketing or engineering?
1: So, <laughs> over the six years, I've probably been at every single team in the company, and not finance and people team. Yeah. But right now, I'm on their products, so it's cool because I get to be really close to the product team. They're building stuff, working on the API, working on like processes around the API. At one point, I think that's another house that I think is grouped with Devrel really is this partnership team, because you both have the goal of opening up the ecosystem. Growing the number of integration, growing the number of people that integrate with you, and that probably works more for people that are in the SaaS world and then not like where API is not the main product, like Typeform. And yeah, at one point I was in engineering as well, but that was a bit harder, I will say, on like how to evaluate my role because they were looking this at the prism of of engineering work, like how many commits, how many bugs that I fixed, this type of things. And at the time, a lot of the things were around content and in community and engagement. And that was not a big online. In product, what do your goals tend to look like? So right now, it's a lot of experimentation. I'll say, like in this sense, the Devrel is the kind of the person that goes into the jungle with the machete, makes the first trail, and then everybody else follows behind. So a lot of proof of concept, a lot of exploration about APIs, about platforms we should use, how things would work, like experiments, and eventually we decide which POC we continue with. It that goes into another team.
0: If you're able to share, were there ever moments in the six years you've been doing this now where people questioned the value or the outputs? Because I know that that's something a ton of DevRel teams struggle with. And to be doing what you're doing consistently for so long, to me, says that like you've found something that works really well. But I'm curious if that's always been the case.
1: It's the case over six months, <laughs> pretty much, at different levels and at different times for different reasons. I think I'm at a point where we invented our own definition of DevRel, and probably because it's me that impersonate this inside the company. And I have the knowledge of the product. I have the knowledge of conversation, of talking to a lot of people. And if someone was starting DevRel today, it would be totally different, probably. And so, yeah, every six months, I have to explain a bit of the things. It's a bit of experimentation on some tooling. It's a bit of building and serving to Customer request. I think the role that I'm defining here is I want to be a yes person when we're talking to, and I think this is a power of DevRel as well. When we're talk to customers, we're like, "Oh, this is a feature that doesn't exist in the tool." I want to be the person that says, "No, it exists, and you just have to make three API calls, and we can solve your issues." And so, explaining all that and all we do, and the community grounding as well. So being part of i right and part of a lot of no-code community which are not developers, but they're really a bit higher engaged, like more engaged and a bit more hacky than just a regular user. And so they're using the APIs. They have kind of a developer mindset. So I would say if you're a DevRel that understands the no-code world is also important in some cases. Yeah, I forgot where I was doing with this, but like it's trying to show this variety of things that we do and explaining it to the right people in the company.
0: It's interesting because I think That's a common trend that people have to re-explain what they did. It sounds like because your team has a level of focus on a very particular persona, right? That's not all developers, but it's a subset of developers, that identifying where you've made an impact is, I don't want to say easier, but like it's possible.
1: Yeah, it's probably compared to uh, other folks in the field I'm probably in a luckier place where it's easier to measure. But we still have struggles on getting the right data in the right place, understanding how many of our folks are developers are using which type of APIs. Like, this is a common thing across the industry. But at least, yeah, we have a better understanding of which is who are like our, our good developers and who we want to see on the platform.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In addition to no code, low code, I noticed that you've been putting out a lot of content and like examples recently around AI, which obviously is like the hot topic of the moment. Where does that fit into sort of your like mental model of the Typeform developer ecosystem?
1: That's a good question. So I think here there are two things. What our customers are expecting. And so we need to have an answer on this. Like people in sales conversation come and be like, okay, what do you do about AI? I heard this AI term is high. And a lot of time when people go shopping, they will pick some words they heard in other conversation and be like, what do you do about this? Well, lucky for us, no one really asked what we do about the blockchain, because I don't think we would have an answer, but at least on AI, we're trying to have an answer. And also because the data that goes through our forms are very AI compatible, kind of, right? From a small sentence, generate something else, do summarization, do categorization, do branching, scoring. You can do a lot of things around this. So having experimentation, having tests, having stuff around this is very helpful because now we have an answer to our customers. And then if we want to go further, then we already made the first steps. But I think the other part is more on the DevRel rule that is riding the wave. That's probably my West Coast, San Franciscan talking and be like, oh, we do surfing, you know, this type of thing. There's a wave of different trends and you just have to catch the wave and ride a bit with it again to get a bit of visibility. So right now, what is hype is OpenAI plus, I mean, it's kind of bored, and boring right now, <laughs> but you pick a model that comes a week and be like, okay, this is what I did with Llama. This is the Llama stuff that it's hype. Eventually, you, you make something good and people pick it and they get excited and you're one of the first people to contribute to a tech blog post about this, then everybody else follow and they do better sure. than you. But at least you were early on, on this. And so, yeah, being early should help, can't help to get a bit of visibility.
0: It's also really fun to play with. Like, I know you said boring, but it's like equal parts boring and mind blowing whenever I try it, like some things I'm like, wow, this is really underwhelming. And other things I'm like, holy crap, I can't believe it can do that.
1: No, uh, like every day I try something, it blows my mind. But what I mean, boring is like if you use the first API like GPT yep. stuff, this has been seen. And I that's think right. that's a challenge as well when you create content is always to come with something original that hasn't been seen yet. Because, yeah, well, like creating an image by giving a prompt, there's already thousands of right, everyone's done this. That. Everyone has done this. They've done this through text. They've done this through a form, through whatever, Alexa, like, like, it's there. So you have to find your right, your angle that's a bit different, how you combine stuff. And I think this is where the challenge is or how you use new models. And so the challenge, I think, at the individual level for you is like how not to be overwhelmed by all these new things are coming and they're shiny and you want to play with them and you get your company out there and your name, personal name out there. So how do you get the time to build all that? Yeah.
0: Is there anything that you played with recently that you were really impressed by, like a cool demo or a new like model or just like a tool that you've been messing
1: around with? Recently, I tried uh, live blocks. And you see, that comes back to my first original wow moment when I discovered Firebase. So LiveBlock is like a collaborative API, similar thing where you create a room, people are in a room, you see their cursors or two people moving together. It's uh, like Google Docs, like the live thing, but for anything, right? Anything. Yes, exactly. And actually, this is like, all right, we're at Firebase, you had to build everything from scratch, profiles, logging, session, all this. Well, now people have come to another level of abstraction and they're like, okay, we'll let you build Google-like collaborative apps and you just use in the get And Lifelox is exactly took this and the state.
0: That's super cool. Yeah, I saw one of their demos a while back and it was pretty impressive. Like I used to try and build similar things with like Socket IO or whatever like node, you know, async stuff and it, it was never quite like right.
1: Yeah, someone else did the hard work for us.
0: That's really cool. So outside of form, are there any people that you think are really doing exceptional work around developer content, like
1: tutorials, education? A lot of people, for sure. We're doing actually a poor job. We should do more content. Why do you say that? It comes with in phases. And I think now we're in a low phase where we're building more than we talk about what we're building, mm-hmm. which is fine, but content is a muscle. And so when you don't exercise it, it's hard to get back to it. And that's where I feel personally I'm liking stuff. Is like I haven't produced a lot of content recently or not as much as I wanted. Who else is producing good content and good stuff? I'm blinking on names here, but all those new developer tools companies. So the Superbase, the all the open source world as well. Like I'm, I'm looking a lot in the Cal.com and all the stuff they do. They're not really a developer tool, but because they're open source, they're doing a bit of DevRel and trying to get contributors working for them, helping them and like, yeah, make pull requests, fixing bugs. So that's very really inspiring as well on the movement.
0: That's really cool. Yeah, I definitely feel like we're in interesting phase of developer content where there's kind of like, almost like the developer influencer persona. There's sort of like all the devrel people, there's more traditional educators. There's like a lot of people creating stuff out there right now and when I think back to like when I was learning to code, which is probably like a similar time to when you were, that didn't exist. Like you have like one option, maybe two options, but now there's almost like a paralysis of choice for having too many options to learn from. And people have to like find micro communities to figure out where to get their knowledge from.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me at the time, and I went to my parents' house uh, over the Christmas break, it was books and I would mm-hmm. just buy books. And then when you got the Drupal 5 book. Eventually, yep. Drupal 6 will come up and you'll buy the book from Drupal 6. You were not going to read that anywhere. There was no Drupal Guru influencer or like a Deborah person that would just like cut the thing for you and do the TLDR. You will just buy the book and read the whole book. And this for every single framework that you were looking to. Yeah, I mean, right now, I will say Dev content that I like, it's on the French side. There's a mm-hmm. really nice girl that's called Issy Emi Planck. I tried to find the thing. It's in French, so if you want to practice your French also, it's great. This is also why there's like niche communities and like not everybody's consuming stuff in English. When I got started as a French person, this is how I got into English because most of the resources were in English. I feel now it's mostly the case, but you have stuff in different uh, languages and you have other locals that are growing as well. But in this case, this girl, she is not from a tech world. She decided to go study into a school called 42 kind of a boot camp where people change career, learn about programming, but not in a school environment, so it's a bit different. They do projects. Eventually, she didn't finish, but as she was there in that school, she started to make like a channel where she explains what she goes through. And she might not be an expert, she is just cutting the stuff and telling you the process she's going through Mm -hmm. and what she's discovering. And I think that's an interesting way to show that tech and programming is not as magical if you spend the time learning and cutting the big problem into smaller pieces. And the fact that she's sharing her thought process and the way she learns, I think it's a different angle compared to let's talk about webhooks and I will tell you what webhooks are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's just another take on this and I think that's pretty cool.
0: I really like that. I've often felt that learning something for yourself gives you the best position to explain it to someone else. Like, when you're too advanced, sometimes it's really easy to forget all of the steps in between zero and 100 that you took to get there because you make a lot of like assumptions and leaps based on your experience. But if you're using something for the first time, it's much easier, at least for me, to like really spell out everything that's going on in a way that a beginner can understand. In some ways, I think this is
1: also the luck of people that are in the dev space is like it's part of their mandates. Mm-hmm. to go learn new thing and make it simpler for others, or at yes. least make it more digestible. And so my, that's my personal pleasure. When I have a new project, i would be like putting myself some boundaries and be like, all right, let's do this now. In And I don't know, let's go learn it. Or like getting started guy like everybody else. And then I'll see if I, I can make it for this time. Yeah.
0: You mentioned language as a part of learning coding. I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about that before we finish up. Uh, I also wanted to do a callback to a previous conversation I had on an earlier episode of the podcast, Dr. Hermans, who had created a programming language called Hedy, H-E-D-Y. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's almost like a progressive language that as you get more complex, more features become available to you for like largely children learning to code. But the thing that I really thought was cool about it is they have translated a lot of the fundamental like libraries and functions into many different languages. And so if you're a kid learning to code, it's not actually assumed in this model that you know English. So it could be like, yeah. I'm going to call print. What is print in my local language? I'll use... And so it has aliases. For both print in English and also print in whatever language you're familiar with. And that's built into the interpreter in a really kind of like natural way. And maybe think about what you were saying of like programmers kind of have to learn English, but they kind of took an alternate approach to it.
1: Yeah. So thanks for mentioning this because I was not aware of the existence of this programming language. And this is really cool. Yeah, there's kind of a disconnect, not like cognitive disconnect when you're learning programming where also, you might read the tutorial in French, but everything else that you put in the code is actually in English. The way you name function sometimes, the way you use some of the words, it's fine. They're small and they're quite direct words. So once you learn a concept, you can reuse it. But yeah, you have to get there. It's like that's one barrier of entry.
0: This has been a really good conversation. I've really enjoyed you know everything you've shared. And I honestly feel like you have a different approach and sort of like strategy from a lot of the DevRel people I talk to. So I appreciate you sharing all of that. The question I always like to end on for my guests is asking me about aspirational figures. The prompt I always frame it as is like, is there a scientist, a tech person, a founder that you wish you could just grab for a couple hours for lunch and pick their brain about how they think about the world? <laughs> I know it's really well, open-ended.
1: No, it's really open-ended. I'll tell you, for me, the inspiration, and that's my daily inspiration, it's really the indie hackers, that's their job, right? They have to ship their app, they have to ship their small SaaS, and they grow every day by two customers, three customers. And eventually, they make it to a sustainable business. They usually bootstrap it, so they don't go to the typical fundraising, press coverage that a, a startup will have. And I think this is really inspiring. It's very frustrating for me because like I should join them and be one of them, but at least there's a lot of like building public movement that is so very healthy and yep. people are sharing the struggles as they're building their own project too. So I'm very inspired by this group of people.
0: Yeah, I know there's a guy at Portland, right, who had built up a lot of like the indie hackers like blog and all of that recently, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have some bigger names, like the Peter Levels, Mm -hmm. the guy that did Nomad List. I think it was one of the early folks that inspired a lot of, like, the next generation of folks around this. The thing that's interesting as well is, like, people build all type of SaaS, right? And you even have people that build an API. I'm thinking about Banner Bear as one of them, which is, like, Mm -hmm. an API to generate images. And so those folks, they're building a small SaaS... They go through the same struggle as bigger companies do like what is the developer documentation what is the developer experience how do i charge monetization of APIs? stuff like this so even at their scale of a smaller scale they go through the same issues and, and so i think that's exciting
0: yeah i completely agree well that's a great note to end on thank you again for your time and for sharing everything we'll include some links somewhere to find you on the internet if folks enjoyed listening definitely you know subscribe for more but thanks again nicholas and happy hacking
1: Yeah, see you around. The State of
0: Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for Developer Education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.